Are you scared? Follow me into the darkness as I review horror films of the past and present. Then, open your minds as I share with you real paranormal experiences that myself and others have encountered. I'm Mr. Steve, and welcome to my horror section. Episode 6, The Exorcism of Emily Rose and the Praying Clothes. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is a horrifying courtroom drama and exorcism film that will shake you to your core and will put your own beliefs to the test. Then, on Paranormal Encounters, I discuss a shared experience that my uncle and I had at different times in our lives that will leave you mind blown. Part 1. The Exorcism of Emily Rose People say that God is dead, but how can they think that if I show them the devil? The Exorcism of Emily Rose is categorized as an American supernatural horror legal drama film that was released on September 9th of 2005. Huh. The film in my last episode was also released on September 9th. Hmm. Funny. Anyways, it was written and directed by Scott Derrickson and co-wrote by Paul Harris Boardman. This film is loosely based on the true story of Annalise Michelle, who was believed to have been possessed by six demons and endured 67 exorcisms during the year she died. I'll be talking about her story a little later on. For now, I'll focus on the movie. This film stars Laura Linney as Aaron Bruner, the defense attorney for Father Richard Moore, played by Tom Wilkinson. And it was Laura Linney who recommended Jennifer Carpenter for the role of Emily Rose, whose performance absolutely blew me away. Our film opens... We can hear a tape recorder playing the sounds of a young girl screaming in a tone less than human. You hear another voice shout out the name Emily, followed by a demonic scream that will stay with you for the rest of the movie. A medical examiner arrives at the Rose family farmhouse. He sees windows covered with boards. He hears something that draws his sight to the open barn door. He stares long and hard before Mrs. Rose calls him into the house. The family is exhausted and sitting in silence, visibly shaken by the dark events that have taken place. The doctor is led upstairs. A bedroom door opens and Father Moore steps out. He is unable to say anything before he walks down the hall. We see scratches all over the wall as the medical examiner steps into the bedroom before the door closes. Emily is dead, and the medical examiner cannot say conclusively that she died of natural causes. Father Moore is taken into custody for the negligent homicide of Emily Rose. Now enters attorney Aaron Bruner to act as Father Moore's defense against the prosecuting attorney Ethan Thomas, played by Campbell Scott. Mr. Scott is a man of God, very devout in his religion, while Miss Bruner is an agnostic or someone that neither believes nor disbelieves in the existence of God, the divine, or supernatural. Agnostics are those who are just not sure. Quite an interesting setting, 
The agnostic defense trying to prove that Emily was indeed possessed by demons and that Father Moore did everything in his power to help her. Meanwhile, the religious prosecutor is trying to prove that Emily's condition was purely medical and psychological and has absolutely nothing to do with demonic forces. Now we watch this horrific story unfold as we bounce from the court case to flashbacks of how this all started, all the way through the bone-chilling exorcism of Emily Rose. Exorcisms, or the ritual of removing spirits from people or locations, have been around for a very, very long time, and are found in almost every religion and culture known to man. Buddhism, Christianity, Catholicism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Taoism, and Chinese folk religion, just to name a few. I find it very difficult to dispute the possibility of demonic possession when it is so culturally universal. Of course, with the development of medical and psychological science, many supposed cases of possession have been discredited. The prosecution is arguing that Emily Rose was suffering from psychotic epileptic disorder, which would explain her seeing the devil's face in the clouds, seeing her fellow college mates' faces morph into screaming demons, and contorting her body into unnatural and downright scary positions. The flashback scenes are downright terrifying in this movie. During the night of the possession in Emily's dorm room, she wakens to the smell of something burning. Take note of that, because it's going to come up again. She makes her way to the hall to check on the situation. As she is investigating, a huge bang just about sends your heart out of your chocolate starfish. <laughs> the wind is blowing the door open and close. Emily kindly closes the door while the audience dabs up the little bit of pee that just squirted out, only to paralyze us again moments later as an invisible force attacks her in bed and enters her body. The sounds and visuals are so disturbing, you find yourself picking your jaw up off the floor when the scene is over, with an Emily is running out of the room, hysterically crying. Now we jump back to the courtroom. Suspecting that Emily suffered from epilepsy, she was prescribed Gambitrol to help control her seizures. Gambitrol was developed by scientists in Africa back in 1939 to help patients suffering from epilepsy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is a completely fictional medication developed for this film. <laughs> you believe me for a second there, didn't you? Anyways, even while on this medication, she was still experiencing demonic apparitions and suffering attacks that left her in contorted positions. Since medication did not seem to be helping, she stopped taking it. The medical experts on the stands are saying that if she would have continued taking the medication, over time it would have built up in her system and started to have the desired effect. Which is very plausible theory if Emily is indeed a psychotic who happens to also have epilepsy. Unfortunately, it was impossible to produce any kind of evidence to the jury that was definitive proof of demonic possession, like photographic evidence of levitation, objects moving on their own, or any other supernatural events. The devil was playing his cards close to his chest on this one. 
It's so easy to make a demonic possession appear as if the person has just gone insane. Because, you know, that never happens. The family members are called to the stands to testify. Emily's boyfriend Jason recounts a chilling event that took place in Emily's dorm room one evening. In the middle of the night, he woke up to find Emily horrifically twisted on the ground, staring at him motionless, with blacked-out eyes. As he reached out to help her, she let out a deep, unnatural scream. As the case continued, Erin was warned by Father Moore that unseen forces were surrounding this trial, and she needed to protect herself. Now, her being a non-believer, she wasn't too concerned, but she finds herself awakened one evening at exactly 3 a.m., the devil's hour. I'm betting most of my listeners already know what that is. She can smell something burning. Told you so. She makes her way to the kitchen, checks the stove, glances up at the smoke detector. Everything seems okay. Just then the power goes out. You can feel her anxiety building. While getting a drink of water, she hears the door to her apartment slowly creak open. Light pours in from the hall. She slowly makes her way to the door, just in time to see a sliver of a black shadow leave the apartment as Aaron slams the door shut. I think we can safely assume this was a, hey, how's it going, from the evil one. That same night, Father Moore is paid a visit in his jail cell, also awakened by the smell of something burning, and a faint whisper saying, one, two, three, four, five, six. He gets up and walks to the bars. Again, we are shocked as we see a momentary glimpse of a cloaked figure showing itself to, to Father Moore. He quickly recites a prayer to chase the evil apparition away. I've heard it talked about in documentaries and other horror films about possession that it is common for people to that's you know they, they smell something burning when there's a demonic presence nearby just something to keep in mind there one of my favorite scenes has to be with dr sadira adani played by the absolutely captivating shore agdajlu here you have a very well educated doctor who has studied the concept of possession and exorcisms across many cultures throughout the world. She believes that Emily is a hypersensitive individual, like a medium or psychic, someone who is, by nature, more open and connected to what we consider to be supernatural forces. She goes on to explain that when an individual is possessed, Exorcism is designed to provide a psychological shock in order to move the presence out of the possessed person. With Emily being back on the Gambiatrol, which has an intoxicating effect on the brain, the exorcism was not able to provide that necessary shock or effect. It was really funny to watch how frustrated the prosecutor got when Dr. Adani was giving her testimony. He gets so mad and just hollers out, OBJECTION! and then goes silent. The judge says, well, on what grounds? He just says, how about silliness, your honor? And then he tries to grill the doctor, and she just smiles and explains herself without losing an ounce of her cool. I just loved it. 
Now let's talk about the exorcism itself. I remember seeing this in theaters and thinking, oh, here we go, another exorcism scene with a girl tied to the bedpost just like in The the Exorcist. I was not expecting it to go the way it did. The exorcism begins, Father Moore is reciting the exorcism ritual, and Emily is screaming at him and mocking him. Then one of the lines she says always shakes me up, and it's in Latin, and it was, um, Ego no sumi quientus habitant. We are the ones who dwell within. Oh, it just creeps me out every time I hear it. <laughs> She's hissing and saying, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. All of a sudden, all the cats in the house, which there's a lot of them, come into the room and attack Father Moore. While this is going on, Emily breaks her restraints and jumps out of the window and heads for the barn in the middle of a thunderstorm. Father Moore, Emily's father, her boyfriend Jason, uh, Dr. Cartwright, and her sister, and Emily's sister, are in hot pursuit. The exorcism continues in the barn, and it is intense. I'd be curious to notice how many takes they had to do in this film uh, to, to film this, because it's quite amazing. One by one, the demons make themselves known. The demons that have possessed the biblical figures Nero, Cain, and Judas, as well as Belial and Lucifer, are all claiming to be inside of her. And the exorcism is a failure. The next day... Emily gives Father Moore a letter she wrote telling him that Mary, the Virgin Mother, spoke to her and gave her the choice of leaving her body and going with her to heaven, or she could stay and endure this torture until she died. Mary told her that through this experience, people would come to know that these forces exist. Emily chose to stay in order to help bring light to the darkness that lives among us. In the end, Father Moore is found guilty, even with the tape recording of the exorcism. However, the jury recommends a sentencing of time served, and the judge agrees, and Father Moore is set free. I had forgotten just how scary this film was until I sat down to watch it to make notes for this podcast episode. I've seen this movie at least 20 times or more, and it still gives me the chills every single time. First of all, the performance of all the actors was stellar. They absolutely sold it. I believed in Laura Linney's performance as an attorney so much that I wanted to call her office to see if she would represent me for that time I streaked through a video store in Chicago. Just kidding. I've never been to Chicago. (laughs) Oh, shut up. You were young too once. The whole point of this movie is to make you ask yourself some pretty deep questions regarding belief. Do you believe in the possibility of demonic possession? If you don't, but you believe in God and angels, isn't that a little hypocritical? We live in a universe that is based off of duality, light and dark, yin and yang, birth and death, right, wrong, men, women, wet and dry, salty, sweet, good and evil. The list goes on forever. How can people accept that there is an all-powerful force of good without also accepting that there is an all-powerful force of evil? In this movie, we watch Laura Linney's character go through many different experiences that leave her not a full-on believer, 
but they leave her more open-minded to possibilities. And I think that's what this movie did for many people. So now we'll talk about the case of Annalise Michelle. From what I read about the real story of Annalise Michelle, The Exorcism of Emily Rose did a pretty damn good job telling her story. Annalise was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, and though she was receiving treatment, she was still experiencing hallucinations of the devil and could not tolerate being around religious icons. Both priests, Ernst Alt and Arnold Rentz, reported that the demons uh, identified themselves during her exorcism as Lucifer, Cain, Judas, Iscariot, Belial, Legion, Hitler, and Nero, among others. Annalise passed away on July 1, 1976, due to malnutrition and dehydration. Her gravesite is located at Friedhof Klingenberg, um, Maine, in Germany, and to this day re- remains a pilgrimage site. This poor woman and her family went through hell, and you do find yourself asking, was this a case of severe mental illness that doctors just hadn't found a cure for yet? Or is it possible that this was true demonic possession? The opinion is yours. I believe that it's very possible. I'm a little bit of a tough sell, though. I need undisputed proof of supernatural abilities like levitation, telekinesis, or anything that can't be explained by our current scientific knowledge. But that's also how the devil protects himself, by keeping people in doubt. If people don't believe that what they are seeing is true possession then they aren't going to rally to do what's necessary to save this person's soul if they think, oh, it's just another crazy person. You're a crafty one, Big Red, let me tell you. Maybe we need to do more exorcisms before pushing the psychiatric treatments. Just a thought. And as I've said before, when you see the evils that men and women are capable of, you have to wonder about the possibility of something darker behind the wheel driving these events. (laughs) So, this film was given a 44% by Rotten Tomatoes, a 6.7 out of 10 from IMDb, and Metacritic gave it only a 46%. I have given The Exorcism of Emily Rose a well-deserved 10 out of 10. Only the second film so far on my show to get that score. The fact that this film still makes my hair stand completely on end and makes me not want to go to sleep afterwards until I watch a Will and Grace or two says something. The story is great. I love the way it was told. And it will scare the poop out of you. The message behind this movie is also just so powerful. It really makes you think... And it's so psychologically scary, very similar to how The Dark and the Wicked scared me. These movies make you use your mind to scare you. And for me, there is nothing scarier than my own imagination.
I call this story The Praying Clothes. While sitting around with my family telling ghost stories, my Uncle Tom shared this one with me. When he was a young man, he was asleep in bed. He woke up out of the blue, rolled over, and his eyes were drawn to a pile of clothes on the floor. Now, the room was very dark. Only the moonlight pouring in from the window was the only source of light. He noticed the clothes on the ground were moving. He rubbed his eyes several times, thinking for sure he must have been hallucinating or partially asleep or something. He looked back. The clothes were still moving. Not a lot. They weren't dancing around the room or anything, but they were swaying back and forth. He just kept staring, trying to figure out what the hell could be causing this. Mice? No. It looked as though it was a person under the clothes, moving back and forth, like someone on their knees, low to the ground with their arms stretched out in front of them and their head down. Uncle Tom tried to wake his brother Bob, but no such luck. He was out. Finally, Tom had enough. He jumped off his bed onto the pile of clothes. Nothing. Absolutely nothing was in them. When my uncle shared this story with me, all the color drained out of my face and my hair stood on end. I was so taken back because I had experienced the same thing when I was about 12 years old. I was losing my mind. I have never had a shared experience before. After I picked my jaw up off the floor, I told him my tale about the praying clothes. Oh, that's what I like to call them anyway. When we first moved into our two-story home on Schmidt Road, my parents had put the um, bunk bed that my brother and I had shared at our old house into my room. We would trade off quite a bit on who was on top bunk, who was on bottom. On this particular night, I was on the top bunk. We had fallen asleep with the TV going. I remember waking up and I was going to jump down to turn the TV off which was the only source of light in the room. My eyes were drawn to movement. There was a pile of clothes on the floor that appeared to be moving. They weren't moving a lot, just enough to keep my attention on them. I thought for sure it was just the light from the TV bouncing off of them. I just kept staring. It seemed to me the longer I stared, the more that they moved. I wish I could have taken a video, but this was long before the age of camera phones. I thought, like my Uncle Tom did, maybe mice or a rat or something had to be underneath them. But to me, it looked like a small person, like child size, was under the clothes, on their knees, but low to the ground, with its arms stretched out in front, and its head down, and it was swaying. The movement... It made me think of how I've seen monks or other religious groups praying or worshiping. Uh, it was just so incredible to see. And I couldn't help but wonder if I was dreaming or something. I, I rubbed my eyes repeatedly. Uh, but every time I would, I would refocus, sure as shit, those clothes were moving. Adam, I whispered, trying to get my brother's attention in the bottom bunk. 
but he was sleeping deep. I didn't want to disturb whatever was under the clothes. I just kept watching them move. I felt like I had to do something. I could feel adrenaline start to kick in. I got myself into a pouncing position, and I was going to get a hold of whatever was under those clothes. I jumped over the rail of the top bunk and down onto the pile of clothes, and they just sunk underneath me. Nothing crawled out like a rat or anything. I searched them very thoroughly. Nothing was there. Just a pile of clothes. It took a little bit, but my heart eventually slowed back down to normal. I climbed back into bed and uh, just went back to sleep. I just figured it had to be the light from the TV. But to hear my uncle share this experience was validation for me. To know that someone else experienced the same thing that I did let me know that I wasn't seeing things, I wasn't crazy. (laughs) Is it possible that both of us were tired and that it could have been light from the moon shining in from his window? Or the light from the TV in my room playing tricks on our eyes. Yeah, it's possible. But this experience has stayed with us all these years. I feel like if this had been just a trick of light, we would have figured that out pretty quickly. But we both stared and stared at these piles of clothes as they continued to move. I'd be hesitant to believe our stories if we would have reacted right away and jumped on them, but we gave the situation time and tried to figure out a logical explanation to what we were seeing. After observing the clothes swaying back and forth for some time, we decided to act. Just like with the case of Annalise Michelle, this story leaves you to ask yourself, what do you believe happened? Only you can decide that. Thank you so much again for tuning in. My Uncle Bob had recommended the film Incident in a Ghostland to me in a past episode. I finally got to watch it, and I was majorly impressed. I would highly recommend it. I won't give anything about it away. I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I found it on the streaming site Shudder, which is a must-have for horror film fanatics like me. You can also find this film on Apple TV, YouTube, Google Play Movies, Vudu, and Amazon Prime, and of course on DVD and Blu-ray. Next episode, I'm reaching back to 1989 and pulling out the hidden gem Howling 5, The Rebirth. The Howling series is one of my favorite werewolf series, but it had its ups and downs, and Howling 5 was definitely one of the ups. It's a great movie, and I really think this film would have gotten a lot more recognition if it had been called something else, but we'll talk about that in my next episode. You can find this movie on Apple TV, Vudu, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, as well as on DVD. Don't forget, I'd love to share some of your paranormal experiences on my show, so email them to me at horrorsection.steve at outlook.com for a chance to have your story told right here on my show. Steve's Horror Section is an independently produced podcast. If you would like to become a supporter of the show, please visit my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash steveshorrorsection.
The music and sound effects on my show are provided by EpidemicSound.com. See you next time.